Good morning, everyone. So if you came hoping to see the senior pastor, Ed, sorry to disappoint you, but Ed's on vacation, and it's a privilege to be here, and it's a privilege to be able to share with you this morning. And on the whole subject of vacations, it's, uh, it kind of occurred to me this week that doing vacations uh, works differently here. I don't do vacations right. Our family doesn't do vacations right. When my wife and I go on vacation, we actually, this is weird, this is going to sound really strange to you guys, we don't normally plan that much. What I've found, though, is that as I meet other people that go on vacations, it's a little bit different. They know the 15 things they're going to do. They know it six months in advance. And even though they're only going to be there two days, they're pretty sure they're going to get them all done. You know, last year we had a pretty cool opportunity. Uh, Lisa's folks bought us a cruise trip. So that was really, really neat. So we went to Alaska. And, you know, people were asking, you know, so what are you going to see? And like a, a ship. No, I'm pretty sure there's like big ice mountains or something. I don't know. We're going to go see the glaciers or something too. No, no, no. But like where, which ports are you going? I, I'm not, I don't know. We're going north and then we're coming back down. And I think people were really confused, right? Because we didn't do a lot of that uh, pre-planning. We didn't have all the excursions figured out. We got on the boat and we're like, what's left? So a number of things were already sold out and we figured it out. And it occurred to me uh, this week that we, a lot of us in our Christian walk, maybe are similar. And what I mean by that is that we maybe view heaven to some extent, maybe view it a little bit like, okay, whew, it's going to be that relaxation, it's going to be the vacation spot, and maybe we don't even really do a lot of planning. Now, I'm hoping that your vacation planning skills are actually at play for heaven. And that's what 1 Peter is talking about as we're in chapter 1. So as we're tracing through the argument of 1 Peter, he's talking to believers that are scattered throughout the known region. Uh, there's different translations that are used to capture that concept in verse 1. And the, the word used in some translations is exiles. You may also have strangers, sojourners, those passing through. Pick your favorite version. And it's, it's interesting because Peter recognizes that in the context of where we are in society, and this is 2,000 years ago, it was applicable, and it's just as true today. He realized that in the context of living in a pagan society, that there are trials, there are challenges that we face, and in the midst of those trials and challenges, it's even harder when you recognize that we're just passing through. And there's this constant division of our attention and passions, which he wants to then direct. He wants to help us and help the early church regain a proper perspective. And so part of that process, before we can get into that, it helps us to understand the situation that they're in. So he's going to ask us to do four different things. One, he's going to challenge us to put our sights that Jesus will return. Second thing he's going to ask us to do is he's going to ask us to pursue a holy transformation. The third thing he's going to do to kind of set our sights right is he's going to say, I want you to remember the price of your salvation. And then the last thing, you know, is kind of the ultimate. And with all of that, I want you to grow in hope, obedience, and love. So he's lining all this up, but it'll help us to recognize that this whole concept of Jesus returning, right? This whole concept of Jesus coming back 
is a little bit lost when you realize that Jesus would have died, been buried, and rose from the dead nearly 30 years ago. The book was written in about AD 64. So about 30 years ago, all this took place. Now, 30 years seems like a long time. If, if you had a friend make a promise to you, hey, if you loan me some money, I won't say we've ever had a situation exactly like this, but maybe it was like to buy a car or something. If you loan me some money, I'll pay you back. And, you know, you're thinking, yeah, yeah, that's cool. And a year goes by, two years goes by, three years go by, five years go by, ten years go by. At some point, let's be honest, you know that money's never coming, right? So this is the situation, though. You've got 30 years have passed since some of these initial promises have been made that Jesus is coming back. Now, granted, Jesus is in a different class. But what do I do with these promises that Jesus will return? What do I do with that notion that he's coming back? Now, to make it more complicated, in AD 64, probably shortly before Peter wrote this letter, Paul was martyred for his faith. Now, you may have heard of Paul. Paul wrote about 13 uh, books of the New Testament. The early church certainly knew who Paul was. He was a powerhouse in the faith. And he would remind people, hey, this is all temporary. We're passing through. But there was this sense of, okay, Jesus will return, right? Even though that message is there, it's kind of getting muddled. So what we're going to do is we're going to read, if you'll stand with me, we're going to read 1 Peter 1, 13 through 25 as we explore this together. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him... As Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You can be seated. So the, the first main point, as I said we were going to cover, is it's Peter is trying to redirect our focus on this idea that Jesus will return. So Jesus will return. Now, if they had a difficult time 30 years after Jesus died on the cross, was buried and resurrected. How does that work 2,000 years later for you and me? Some of you are already falling asleep. 
You're like, you know, I, I've done the math on this. You take 2,000, you divide it by, what, I mean, you, the probability obviously is very, very low, right? So you're thinking, this is so low, in fact, that I don't know, is Jesus coming back in my lifetime? Maybe, maybe not. Am I going to live any differently? Yeah, I don't even know what that means anymore. Are we at a place where you can no longer actually anticipate the return of our Savior? I don't know if you know this, but the next time Jesus comes, it's not going to be in a meek and mild manner. Jesus will return. I think as we try to explore this, I mean, I could try to emphasize this lots of different ways, and I, I don't know that it would make a dent. And honestly, it's just hard to make a dent in this concept of complacency when for 2,000 years he hasn't shown up. So I got permission to share with you a dream. And I, I want to share it with you guys. It's the first time, uh, well, 9 o'clock I guess was the first time, that I've ever shared it before a large group. So this is 25 years ago. I had an incredibly vivid and incredibly powerful dream. To this day, I remember all the details. I remember where I was standing. I remember what it looked like in the dream. I remember the feelings I had. I remember, I mean, it was incredibly powerful. In my dream, outside, I was at work, and outside I looked out the window. It was nighttime, or at least it was dark. Whether it was nighttime, I don't know. But there was a blood-red moon. And I, at the time, I would have known what a blood-red moon was, but I later, after seeing a blood-red moon, went, aha, that's what I saw. It was a blood-red moon, and everybody was going outside, and they were looking at the moon, and everybody was looking at what was happening up in the sky, and, and were kind of marveling at what was there. And I, at first, I was like, I don't, I don't get it. What is everybody looking at? So I'm looking outside. I'm trying to figure out what it is, but I'm still in, in where I work. And all of a sudden, I get the sense that Jesus is coming, and he's coming now. It was a powerful sense of right now, Jesus is coming. And with complete disregard to the fact that I was at work and there were people around me, I dropped to my knees and I began praying. I felt incredibly inadequate. I didn't know what that meant for me. I didn't know if I was going with him. I hope so. But I felt this sense of, oh my goodness, he's coming back. And I began praying, Lord, please take me with you. In my dream, I was raptured. I was caught up. Not everybody will be familiar with that term. The term rapture just means to be caught up, and there's some different passages in Scripture that refer to it. It is not a passage or a series of passages that would have been well studied necessarily at that time. This is before the Left Behind series and all that. But I was raptured up, and I felt like a sock being pulled inside out. It was, it was kind of a bizarre experience. I ended up on this long windy path, and there were all these believers, uh, some that I didn't even realize were believers. So I started looking at all these people. I'm like, whoa, that person's a believer? I didn't even know they were a believer. And I'm checking it out, and that's the end of my dream. I wake up. But the dream was so incredibly powerful, it rocked my world. In fact, I woke up, and I was like, okay, I don't know what to do with this dream. I'd never heard of anyone having any dreams like this. I call up my buddy, Wayne. Yeah, I got to share this dream with you, dude. Okay. So I share the dream with my friend, and I, I recount the whole dream over the phone. And he says, if you could see the hairs of my neck, they're all standing straight up. All right, well, why? He said, because I just had the same dream, and so did another friend. Three of us had the same dream. 
And all of our dreams, we all saw the blood red moon outside and whatever was going on in the sky that everybody was marveling at. We all had different reactions to that, but we all knew that Jesus was coming back. All three of us were raptured in our dream. All three of us ended up on the windy path. That was crazy. I didn't know what to do with that. Like I said, I hadn't heard of anyone ever having any dreams like that. We didn't go to a church that even really talked about that kind of thing. So I would keep that quiet for, except for a very, very small group of people for at least a decade. Well, what's the point? I think that dream for me, I, I don't know that it was necessarily intended for anything beyond. I mean, it didn't, just so you know, it didn't come with a transcript, didn't come with instructions, didn't come with any insights. In fact, afterwards, we were like, okay, do we fast for 40 days? Like, what are we supposed to do with this? I mean, is he coming back tomorrow? Do you think it's this weekend? Like, what's the, uh, this is 25 years ago. What do you do with that? But I think there was one very, very powerful message, and that was, Jesus will return. It's a game changer, guys. See, I make my plans for vacation, or I make my plans for work, I make my plans for whatever, but how does that change my thinking if I know Jesus is coming back? Are we paying attention to the world around us? Now, some might make the argument that when Jesus comes back, he's going to save us from all kinds of hardship and all kinds of trial. I'm going to put it out there. Uh, There's no guarantee of that. Regardless of whether or not you're pre-trib, post-trib, most-trib, whatever-trib, it doesn't matter. There is no guarantee that we are not going to endure hardship. There are Christians around the globe dying for their faith now. And if we think we're immune to that, I think that's a foolish way to think. And, And Peter's addressing the group saying, look, I get there's all kinds of trials. I get that there's all kinds of things going on. But I need you to remember, Jesus will return. Second thing that Peter does as he begins to align us is he challenges us to pursue holy transformation. Pursue holy transformation. Now, in the first section, he commands us to hope. And he wants us to hope on this idea that Jesus is returning. And he wants us to understand grace. But in the second section of pursuing holy transformation, he commands us to be holy. Now, here's what's difficult about being holy. It's actually impossible to be holy, one. So there's that. The other thing that's fascinating is we're commanded to. So we're commanded to do something impossible, How does that work? So, Peter in the verse 13 tells us to hope fully on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Christ comes back, we're going to receive grace. So now I've got to balance this concept of it's grace, I'm hoping in grace, but now I've got to be holy. How do I do these together? And I think our answer is actually found in in looking at some other passages. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
Then you will know the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And what's cool about Romans 12, 1 through 2 is we get this notion of a living sacrifice. We get this notion of how this process of, uh, big fancy words, sanctification or becoming holy is supposed to happen. See, there's a renewing of the mind, but so we think of things as, you know, if I just try hard enough, if I just do enough, if I've got my checklist, right, then I can be better. And isn't being holy about being better? Shouldn't I have my checklist? But in Romans 12, 1 through 2, what's really cool about what's going on there is it says, do not be conformed to this world. Now, the word conformed in Romans 12, 1 and 2 is the idea of you've got hot metal and you're beating on it with a hammer. It's an outside-in process. It's being conformed. We're not supposed to be conformed. It's not about us. We're supposed to be transformed. Transformed works differently. Transform is like metamorphosis. It's like caterpillar goes into the cocoon and out pops a butterfly. That's transformation. That's the holiness that we're called to. So the command then has to be cooperative. So when we are commanded to be holy, it is a cooperative thing. See, it is God who makes holy. It is God who makes holy. But he will not do it if we don't want to be a part of that process. Believer or not. I think as a believer, he'll eventually get us to the best version of what we could become. But if we don't want to participate with God, that process is stunted. We are to become holy, and that is done with him. So pursuing holy transformation is really about being ready and willing for God to make that change. Isaiah gives us a great picture of how some of this is going. So Isaiah was a prophet, and if he could show up before God and not be ready, we've got to be on a similar boat. It says in Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say this to the people, and then he instructed them on what to say. But it was God who made holy. It's God who makes us holy. It's a cooperative thing. In our lives when God's making us holy, it's interesting, and Peter in verse 6 is talking about various trials. And some commentaries will argue that the various trials are really about only the persecutions as believers. 
And what's interesting, though, with the phrasing of various trials is that it really does not limit itself to just that. But no doubt, the early church was under severe persecution, unlike most of us have ever seen. And so if we had seen that, how would we do? But going through trials is one of those places where I have a really difficult time recognizing that God is transforming me, that he is creating in me a new heart, that he is making me holy. Because see, trials are hard. So we think goal in life is happiness. And so the the problem is that when I set my focus on happiness as the goal, there's a lot of ways to shortcut that. See, happiness could mean changing jobs. Happiness could mean, you know, what I really need is I'm going to be happy, Lord, when you do this in my relationship with so-and-so, whether it be your wife or uh, for some of you, maybe pursuing a wife or a husband. And I'm going to be happy, Lord, when you do these things. But God is more interested in our holiness. He's more interested in that transformation that's happening in our lives. Sometime back, we had kind of picked up, not kind of, we picked up, we went all the way to Texas. I was really excited to go to Dallas Theological Seminary, and I wanted to go there and It's a whole other story of all the cool ways that God kind of confirmed that this is where we were going. And he said, you know, these are the type of things that needed to be done. And they all happened. It was really cool. But while I was there, I was working for a company that some of you may know. It was a company called Arthur Anderson. may not be as common now, but at the time it was all over the news. Arthur Anderson had gotten into the news because they were auditors for a company called Enron. And Enron was engaged in some very shady deals, and it was Arthur Anderson's responsibility as an auditor to catch any kind of things that weren't correct. So if somebody's cooking the books, it's their job to figure it out. Now, whether or not they were right or wrong, that's a debate for another day, but what I will tell you is that I was a casualty of that whole war. I did not know at the time how serious it was. I remember somebody asking me, hey, have you heard of Enron? I'm like, yeah, I think so. What do you think? I had a blowover. If you ask my wife, I'm confident about just about everything like that. Ah, it's going to blow over, so. Okay, well, it didn't blow over, not the way I expected. So Arthur Anderson at the time uh, had a worldwide practice, which I was lucky enough to be in. And I say lucky because at the time, it was actually really, really cool. I got to flex my hours from zero to 40 hours at, at whim. I got to work from home. I had huge privileges. Everybody thought I was smart, which, you know, you could have an illusion because they didn't actually have to work with you. And so all this stuff was going on where I was like, yeah, this is a gravy train job. But when Enron happened, it became very apparent to the worldwide organization that this was a US problem. So the worldwide partner said, hey, this is a US problem. We're gonna disband the worldwide group because we do not wanna be dragged down with you. And so partner calls up and, or has a conference call with 6,000 of his closest people. Hey, just wanna let you know, today is your last day on the job. Uh, you're all gonna receive you know, a few weeks of payout, but that's it. Good luck. If it makes you feel any better, I'm losing my job right after this call. It didn't make me feel better, in case you're wondering. So, you know, I went and I told Lisa, I'm like, whoa. I said, yeah, so I apparently just lost my job. Her next words were a little confusing. She said, I'm excited. All right. Not the response I was expecting. Why? She kind of, well, it's a, it's a chance to see how God is going to work. 
That was so cool. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I can ride this train. So I'm on this train now. I'm like, I, I, yeah, we can do this. We don't have any money. I don't know how we're going to survive. But yes, God will provide. And, you know, somehow during that entire time, I went six months without being able to, to work. And during that time, honestly, I mean, this is not a trying to pat myself on the back, but I think we actually did pretty well. We actually really trusted the Lord. We believed he was going to provide. There were definitely some dicey situations. We ended up on state-assisted food and medical, which that confused me. I'm like, whoa, Lord, I didn't think I was supposed to be begging for bread, having a little trouble figuring out where you're operating. But for the most part, I think we did all right. So that was like phase one of a trial. But I think the real trial came when we had no money left in the bank. We had bills coming due, and we, I say no. I mean, we were down to 300 bucks. And I interviewed for a job out of Addison, Texas, which would have left me in school. I interviewed. I got the job. I'm really excited. Hey, cool. Yeah, so what are the specifics? Well, you did great on in your interview. Oh, that's fantastic. Great. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm very excited about the job. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to give you this job. Cool, cool. Yeah, I'm really excited. Just one catch. Yeah. So you know how I, the original job you were going to like work from your home and, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, you won't be able to do that. Okay, yeah, I can adjust. Uh, so that's fine, I, we'll figure it out. Oh, and you're not going to be in Texas. Uh, you can take the job, in, but it's, it's a position in Northern Virginia. You'll be working at a government agency. Uh, okay, I, you know, it was interesting, though. It didn't really take that much prayer. It was either, like, go bankrupt and lose everything or take the job. Lord, should I do this? Do you want to go into bankruptcy? No, then take the job. Okay, cool. So I'm going to go take the job. But I was confused. And I, I'll tell you what, despite having six months of trusting God, when he disrupted my plans of what I, because God didn't know what he was doing, he disrupted my plans and said, I'm, I'm actually moving you guys to Northern Virginia. See, when God started redirecting and things didn't go the way I wanted, that's where I was struggling. But would I have struggled if I had the right perspective? Next point is that we are to remember the price of our salvation. Remember the price of our salvation. So, you know, when we try to think about what Jesus did on the cross, I think we have a really hard time embracing this. Peter says it's not with gold that he purchased you. That's perishable. It's with his blood. So... We can pursue God. We can try to pursue God. I can try to keep this eternal perspective. I can try to remember that Jesus is coming back. But when I'm going through the thick of it, can I remember that I have salvation? Now, for some of us in this room, that that transformation process maybe have never taken place. And I want to be very clear. There has to be a point in our lives where we trust Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. There has to be a point where we say, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins and I receive your gift. It's not a, you don't don't have to get the words right. You have to understand that our salvation is a gift, that we have to receive that. And if you've never done that, I want to talk to you today. And if you don't want to talk to me because I look funny, I'll direct you to someone else. But once we are saved, we cannot lose sight of the price of our salvation. What Jesus did on the cross, when he took the whips, when he had the thorns thrust upon his head, when he was nailed to a block of wood and and hung there, that's a price we were supposed to pay. So when we go through difficult situations, can I remember that? 
So I went through a, a period of, a pretty long extended period where I really, really struggled with headaches, debilitating headaches. It caused fatigue and it, it caused me to not be able to think straight. I couldn't operate half the time. In case you are wondering, I would drive that way. Anyways, so I was not doing great. In fact, I just felt like I was getting worse and worse. And it got to the point where I was having trouble even working and, and operating. And I'm really getting frustrated. And I remember reaching this place where I was like, you know, what if God doesn't heal me? What if God doesn't, you know, what if this is my lot? Am I okay with that? If the only thing that Jesus has ever done for you or will do is redeem you and make you his child so that you can live with him forever, is that enough? Is it enough to say, no matter what, no matter what, God, I'm still going to trust you through this. Lord, I don't understand what you're doing, but I trust you. But I trust you. Now, I've, I've had the opportunity to witness supernatural healing, which to me is just the coolest thing ever. It would be even cooler if it happened instantaneously in my life, like I've witnessed in some other people's lives, but God doesn't seem to want to do it that way in my life. He likes to make things take much longer, which... Praise God, he knows what he's doing, but I'm impatient, so I wish he would do it faster. But about seven years into my headaches, I had a really, really cool encounter with the Lord where I was praying and, and probably whining and lifting this up to God of my headaches and fatigue and everything else. And in the midst of that, I felt like the Lord spoke these words to me. He said, uh, for seven years you got worse. For seven years you will get better. And about seven years later, I realized I don't get them like I used to. I'm not out of commission all the time. But what if he didn't? Would I have been okay? So we have to remember the price of our salvation. Is it enough? So once we get our perspective right on these two things, now he can move on to, Peter can move on to, that he wants us to grow in obedience and love. Verse 22, it says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And the, the love here is a command, but what's interesting is he starts that section by actually saying, now that you're believers and you're doing all this, you have brotherly love. Woo! So, my command is, love earnestly. So, great that you've got love, but now I want you to go a little bit deeper. And if I look at how I operate in my life, and maybe you guys do the same thing, if we look at how we're operating in our lives, and we say, what does love look like? Oh, man, I think I do pretty good. You know, I, I called so-and-so last week and uh, asked them how they were doing. They said, oh, you're struggling. Woo, I'll pray for you. Yeah, woo. I prayed, Check. Uh, hey, uh, I'm going to send a quick text message. Hey, just want you to know I've been thinking about you. Love, Mark. Boop. So, you know, I, hey, uh, I could use some help uh, moving some boxes next week. What time are you moving? Uh, from 8 until noon. Oh, sweet. Show up at 11.45. Got any boxes left? I have a few minutes. Oh, cool. You got that one little rack in the corner? Yeah, I'll grab that. 
Do we love ever increasingly more? How many of us have taken time off of work to actually go help someone? How many of us have actually decided to cancel a vacation because somebody needs help? How many of us, while driving to wherever, to some friend's house, because you know it's, uh, they're, they're expecting us at 6, it's 6, if, <laughs> if they're expecting us at 6, we're not showing up till 7 anyway, but, but you're going to a friend's house and then somebody's on the side of the road and you're like, they look like they need help. Somebody will get them or they got a cell phone. So you just keep on going. Do we know how to love more? See, it's not just that we have hope. That's part of it. Right? We have to have hope. We have to know Jesus is coming back. We have to be pursuing holy transformation. We have to remember the price of our salvation, but that's just the foundation. And then from that, our love needs to be growing. Because see, as we love others, people will begin to see Jesus in us. And as we study the book of 1 Peter, this is the stage that he sets for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you are holy, that you call us to be holy. We do pray for life transformation. We pray that you would help us, Lord God, to love others and to love more and more deeply. Would you stand with us? We're going to sing, sing verse 2 in a chorus of For the Sake of the World. Flame in my soul for every 
So we just thank you guys so much for worshiping with us today. You are dismissed.